do in the winter. Hello and welcome to the 13th of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Derbig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Olive Brown of Tobermory. Originally from Dundee, Olive met her late husband, Alistair, whilst a student at St Andrews, and, after some time down south, came to Tobermory to run Alistair's family shop, the iconic Browns on the main street. Browns is legendary because you could find literally anything you needed in store. <laughs> we talk about her life growing up in Dundee, her student years in St Andrews, the shop, Mall Museum and the Rural. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with some more waffle. If you're curious about any of the subjects we talk about, please feel free to visit our website at whatwedointhewinter.com to find links that will allow you to investigate further. And now, with great pleasure, I give you Olive Brown. If it's okay to ask, um, could you introduce yourself for the listeners? I'm Olive Brown and I've lived in Tobermory for nearly 50 years and uh, I was born in St Andrews and I grew up in Dundee. I met my husband Alistair when we were students at St Andrews. After we were married we lived down in Essex for about eight or nine years and then he got the opportunity to come back to Tobermory to work in the shop, Brown shop, and we've all been here ever since. Sadly, he died in 1991. I took over running the shop after that, and uh, I retired about 10 years ago. Are you enjoying retirement? Well, it's much busier. (laughs) I have frequently said, I think I'll go back to work for a rest, because when you're at work, people don't ask you to do extra things. You can be sitting in your office doing nothing, but people think, oh, she's at work. I won't disturb her. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if you're retired, people say, oh, she could do that. She could do that. And so I I say to people who are about to retire, make sure you don't get sucked into an activity that you don't actually enjoy. Yeah, I can understand that very much so. Like offering to drive people around when you hate driving, for example. Or people. Or, or yes, so don't don't get volunteered for everything. Yeah, pick and choose. Uh, your time is a, 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 as always yes. in life. Time is the most precious of commodities. That's the one thing we never have, and it's um, yeah, using time is very appropriate. You've know, got to use it appropriately. So you're fr- from um, St Andrews originally. Yeah. No, I was just born there. Right. Okay. I was born there, but I grew up in Dundee, and I lived there till I was eighteen. Gosh. And, uh, what was Dundee like when you were growing up? Well, I was going to say when when we got married, moved to Essex, mm. it was a quite a culture shock. I'd grown up in Dundee, which has always been a very vibrant city. Yeah. It's got a teaching university, a yes. medical school, a dental school, yes. a very well-known art school. Mm. I went to Dundee High School, which has an amazing reputation. Yeah. Um, there was theatres, there was concerts, there the was music. Yeah, yeah. There was so much going on, libraries, museums, everything you have in a busy city. And shops, of course. Yes. And everything you could possibly want. And we moved to Essex and there was none of that. We were in a little rural village and Anster was working in a company called Crittles who made 
Um, they made greenhouses, but they also made specialist windows, and he was in the export department, oh. so he was away abroad a lot, oh, all sorts of places. Um, but we lived in this little village called Whittam, and there was none of all the things I'd been used to in Dundee. <laughs> so it was a bit of a culture shock. And then we moved to Colchester, which is oh, right. a really interesting town, yeah. full of history. It's and Very interesting history. Well, it's got Roman remains, the Norman castle, the Huguenot district, the, all sorts of things. Yeah. So that was, that was better. Uh, did you have a family when you lived in Colchester? Yes, both Alan, my son, older son, and Duncan, my younger son, were born there. Right. Um, Alan now lives in Toronto and Duncan lives in London. Um, so they were Essex boys. <laughs> Fantastic. Ah, gosh. And how did they enjoy coming up to, to Scotland? Well, they were quite small. Um, okay. Alan's only about three. Okay. Duncan was one and a bit. Okay. So they don't... Alan might just remem- remember strange things as three-year-olds remember. Yeah. Completely random things. Feelings and spaces. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, Duncan doesn't remember it at all because he was just, he wasn't even walking. (laughs) So what did your parents do in Dundee? Well, my father's family had a company of monumental sculptors, that's tombstones and things, and also one time quite a lot of shop fronts, you know, granite and marble. But it was mainly tombstones. And... uh, when cremation became more popular, my father always used to say, "Ah, oh, well, um, Catholics don't really believe in cremation, so we'll be all right." <laughs> oh dear! So it, his fa- it was his father's firm, and before that as well. So it went back two or three generations. And your mother? What did your mother do? Well, um, she was just a housewife, as people say. Um, she was a secretary in a legal office when she got married and then um, she gave up work you know when she got married I was born and then the war came along because I was born in 1939 the war came along my father was called up immediately because he was in the territorials and father-in-law her father-in-law had died so there was this monumental sculptor's business with nobody to run it, and okay. some of the men were also being called. So she just went in and ran it for the duration of the war. That's brilliant. Yes. Gosh. And we, we moved to stay with my grandparents, her parents, um, so that they could look after me. Right. Where was that? That was in Downfield in Dundee. Okay. It's a sort of north... It was a northern suburb on the very edge of Dundee then, and, it, you know, Dundee's grown yeah. out and out and out. Oh, it's an amazing city. Have you yeah. been back recently to see the changes that have come in the last I haven't, year? I've just been through it. I haven't oh. been back oh, um, very to do a proper visit. Yeah, very keen to go back and see uh, everything. It's, yes, you know, uh, yeah. but it's changed amazingly. Oh, I love it. It's a great city. And they keep building things and then knocking things down <laughs> again. <laughs> so were you, were you there when the Beatles played the Caird Hall? No. Ah. <laughs> uh, you, Tommy Steele. Oh, Tommy Steele. Yes. Nice. It was That's it was the first time um, a pop concert had got a bit wild. Oh, fantastic. You know, people were getting up and dancing in the aisles and things, which nobody had ever done before. Oh, that's brilliant. We're sitting in the Caird Hall, which is a very staid, big concert hall. Mm. 
and uh, there was Tommy Steele. That must have been magic. Had, had you been a fan of his beforehand? Yes. Yeah. So how did it feel knowing that, you know, there's this icon from London, or straight from London's glittering West End coming up to you? Well, you see, because it, uh, Dundee was quite a, a busy city culturally, we did have stars from the West End taking part in pantomime or being with the Scottish National Orchestra and things. Yeah. So he was just... He, he wasn't such a... It wasn't such a big excitement, um, as you might think. <laughs> I'm from Dunoon, come on! <laughs> but actually, Dunoon in the 60s had Pink Floyd, yeah. the Hollies, and then when I was a teenager, and the Eurythmics, before they were the Eurythmics, mm. they were the tourists, they were there. Um, and when I was a teenager, uh, Blur came at the height of um, the Blur Oasis thing, and that was that was magic, you know, to think that there's you know, one of the biggest bands in the world was in mm-hmm. our hall. It's like... Wow, that was really special. Great. So the experience of growing up in Dundee was was a positive one? Was, yes. Yeah. Yes, I feel very privileged to have grown up in, in Dundee and gone to a really good school where um, this business of equal opportunities for women, We were. I was having lunch with my school, some of my school friends just the other day Lovely. in Glasgow, and we were talking about how, although boys and girls were separated for things like Obviously, the boys played rugby and we played hockey. In the classroom, everybody was equal. Brilliant. It didn't matter when you were doing physics or chemistry or history or Latin, whether you were a boy or a girl. It was quite formal. Boys spoken to by some of the teachers just by their surname Mm -hmm. and girls spoken as Miss. I was Carnegie, so I was Miss Carnegie. It was quite formal, but... We had equal opportunities and lots of people went on to university. Mostly people went to St Andrews, one or two went to Edinburgh, one person went to Oxford. It was so exciting, we got a day off school. That's great. The first time anybody, well, he got a scholarship as well. So it was very significant. That's fantastic. Yes. One of the things that strikes me about Dundee is the linguistic identity of the city is kind of sort of separate to that of Glasgow or Edinburgh. It's got its own kind of linguistic character. Were you aware of of that kind of uh, Scots language identity? uh, There was a sort of what you spoke in the playground and what you spoke in the classroom. And, you know, we probably spoke with quite a Dundee accent, um, I listen to one or two people I know who are on the radio occasionally who have a dandy accent and I think it's a unique accent and we probably use lots of dialect words when we're playing. Having, you know, had all these years in in Essex and then coming here where um, lots, there's very little Scots dialect words used. (laughs) So I've kind of lost it. (laughs) Duncan, when he was little, he said to me, Mum, can you can you speak like Urwelly? Fantastic. <laughs> yes, my darling. Yes, I can, <laughs> but I shan't. <laughs> so that was how he, you know he was connecting it all up when he was quite little. <laughs> so um, you went from Dundee to St Andrews University. Yes. What did you study at St Andrews? English. Ah, so was that English language, English... It was English language and literature was the name of the degree and it was doing things like Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. and uh, Middle English, I think it was called, yeah. Chaucer, oh, Shakespeare, Chaucer. Yeah. Shakespeare and working up to more modern stuff. 
Fantastic. Which sort of stopped about 1900. <laughs> oh, it should even get to Forster. <laughs> no, nothing like that. Hmm. Um, so it, it was quite wide-ranging. And in those days, university studying and exams were completely different. Yeah. You did exams at the end of the year. Yes. Um, but then your degree, it was nine three-hour papers. Oh, that's horrible. There was no... No coursework. There was no assessments. That's nothing. Horrible. And over the space of about two weeks, you had nine three-hour papers. How is that supposed to show that you could actually have, you know, learnt anything really? That's all about digesting and just kind of repeating. Yes. It's not. And I'm lucky in that I found that quite easy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good at going into an exam and kind of being fired up by the yeah. questions the so, stimulus of seeing the questions yeah. all sorts of information suddenly appeared that I didn't know I had oh that's quite useful I'm so really lucky but up the other side of the coin is um, I know of somebody who had three attempts he just had a kind of breakdown in the middle of course he couldn't cope yeah in the end when he did do it all he got a first he got yeah. a brilliant degree but what trauma he'd gone through, because I think after, at the third attempt, if he hadn't mm-hmm. succeeded, and that's how it was. So you've got your undergraduate degree. Did you do a postgraduate as well? No, nothing. Just got married. <laughs> Graduated on Friday and got married on Saturday. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, it seemed convenient. It's a big weekend. <laughs> it was a big weekend, but it seemed convenient that all our year yeah. um, would be there for the graduation. Yeah. So they might as well just stay on another day. Because, you know, people didn't travel such huge distances to come up from, say, Leeds or something for the graduation. It was a big thing. Yeah. To do it twice in one year, might they might not have come. So we just thought, we'll just go for it. <laughs> and how did you meet Alistair at college? Oh, yes, I've got this lovely story, which I tell to Americans, um, <laughs> that we met on the golf course All right. in St Andrews. <laughs> but we actually did. There was this guy I knew who was, he said, was getting up a golf four, and he said, there's this chap, a chap, this chap I, I knew from school called Alistair Brown. He's going to come and make up the four. Uh-huh. And that was it. So off we went, the four of us. Can't remember who the other one was. Mm. We played a round of golf. As students, we got it for nothing. Brilliant. Including the old course. Amazing. That was incredible. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we went and had a game of golf. And uh, I wouldn't say it was love at first sight. It was kind of on and off for a year or two until we decided we were right for each other. Fantastic. Gosh. So, I'm... But it's a great story to say... You know, to Americans yeah. that you met your husband on the golf course in St Andrews because they see it like it's the most important place in golf. So, what was dating in in St Andrews like at that time? Oh. What did you do for dates when you were, you know, with Alistair and yourself? Where did you go? What did you do? Well, you just went out for a cup of coffee or something, and you went to lot dances and hops and balls and stuff. Okay. We really didn't. There was not much drinking when you think about it. Nowadays, you'd go out for a drink. Yes, yeah, yeah. Going out for a drink was... Drink was much more expensive. Yeah, yeah. You've no idea how cheap drink is now compared with in the past, mm-hmm. you know, as a proportion of your income. So we were poor students yeah. and 
We just went out for a cup of coffee. Nice. In Tad's Cafe or somewhere. Oh, that's fab. Or a walk along the West Sands or something. It was lovely. Yeah, it was lovely. Just spending time together. Yes. Yeah. So, as a, when you were a student uh, and, and uh, stepping out with Alistair, did you come here at all during the holidays to see what the mm. mall was like? Yes, once. <laughs> Came, when, we, what do you think? Oh, well, it was fine. I mean, it's a bit intimidating meeting relatives. Yeah. <laughs> Because he came to stay with his aunt and uncle because his parents had been in Iraq. His father went out in the 30s to work for the king of Iraq, presumably, building railways. He was a a railway engineer. So he was building railways across the desert. And he was there all during the war. Mm -hmm. And and then after the war, when Alistair was back at school, he used to come here for his holidays to his aunt and uncle who lived in this house gosh so there's a long family history in this lovely house I know it goes back to the day it was built gosh that was remarkable when Anster was born um, they were in Mosul alright they weren't even in Baghdad they were in Mosul and say my father-in-law was building railways so he was out in the desert and he had his own railway carriage that was like he lived in it and wow. it was his office wow. you know for the designing and planning the railways and then wow. in 1958 there was a revolution yes. and they got out by the skin of their teeth with what they stood up in what did they say about Iraq what were, were they fond of it what, what did they say well about it was it? a dif- different life it was this expat life you know was lovely big house and servants and quite formal and uh, so it was a bit of a shock when they had to come back to this country with virtually nothing and my father-in-law um, worked in for Perth County Council still doing engineering but he was doing a, a job way below his specifications yeah. you know what he could have done yeah. but he'd kind of lost touch with everybody in this country because um, he didn't think he'd ever need... He mm. thought when he retired, he would retire, yeah. as most people do. Yeah. think they'll retire on a good pension. Yeah. He hadn't thought he would need to keep up with other people in this country. So so they had to go and start again, and they did. In Perthshire? Yes, they lived in Schoon, yeah. which is quite a nice wee town. Yeah. yeah. So they were the, the Brown family? Yes. That brings us round to Brown's the shop. Yes. Can you... Do you want me to start at the beginning? Start at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Um, the shop is called Archibald Brown and Son. Yes. Archibald Brown was the first principal lighthouse keeper at Ardner Merkin. And he was there from 1849 to 1853. Mm-hmm. Then he fell out with the lighthouse board because they wanted to shift him to um, Barra Head. <laughs> and he said, more or less, he, he promised that my next posting would not be somewhere so remote. <laughs> and this is even more remote. And they said, no, no, there's a ship coming for you like in two days' time and you're going. And he said, no. So he resigned. Yeah. And it was the first time anybody had ever resigned. It's all in the minutes, all beautifully yeah. handwritten in the minute books in Edinburgh. Um, it was the first time a lighthouse keeper had resigned. So he came to Tobermory 
somehow got employment and it, and the next thing we know he's bought this building which mm-hmm. is um, where Brown Shop is running the shop he's married got children and uh, gosh so that's that's how it all started with him just leaving the lighthouse service and coming to Dovermore we don't know exactly how he went from no. arriving here to actually Owning, owning the shop, and then he built this house um, in 1876. And where was he from originally? I'm still far Danoon. We've talked this before, yes. haven't we? That's right, yeah. Um, near Danoon, there's yeah. a, a farmhouse yeah. called Stronsall. Yeah. yeah. It's still called Stronsall. Yeah. It's in the middle of the forest now, which I don't think it would have been then. Um, it's just across the river from... It's Glen Kenway, isn't Glen it? Glen Kenway, yeah. yes. We've all been and had a look at it, and there's never been anybody there. Right, okay. We used to spend a lot of time down there as kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, uh, we had uh, the Glenkin, uh, mm-hmm. it was a sort of camping centre for local scouts. It was owned by the Bryson Trust, which was uh, a family mm-hmm. in, in the town. And uh, yeah, it was for, for youth activities. Mm-hmm. And oh, Glenkin had a massive impact on me as a kid. I loved it, and the Cubs and Scouts did as well, mm-hmm. obviously. But yeah, so he's from Dunedin originally, goodness me. Yes. And um, so he marries. Uh, was it a lady from here? That no, you she was from Inverness. Her name was Marianne Masson, and uh, her father might have been working here. You know, we we don't know quite how they met, but they he married this lady from Inverness, and they had several children. Lovely. And uh, most of the we know where most of the descendants are. Um, yes, I'm in contact with with one of them through the podcast as well. With Jane. Yes. Well, yes. Jane. Jane is one of the Canadian branch mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's the keeper of the family tree. Mm-hmm. She's the one that's done all the research and um, tracked everybody down and keeps in touch with everybody, which that's, is really good to have one person in the family doing it because there's lots of families where people are going to get round to it yes, and they might do it one day. <laughs> yes, life gets in the way. Yeah. Um, so what we, what was it, what is it, do you think, that makes Browns distinct? What has always made it something that, it's a, you know, I came here as a teenager when I was 13. We were staying down at Artun um, in uh, Benesson mm-hmm. and uh, we had a day out in Tobermory and I bought my pen knife in Browns at the age of 13. And I remember going in and being fascinated by this place. And you know, Well, I think people are always fascinated by hardware shops. I mean... People are. Yeah. It's a bit like stationery shops as well. That people yes. love to go and just look oh. at pens and notebooks. Well, people love to go and just look at tools and screws and mm. and that, that sort of thing. But it also, it's an off license, so it has this kind of unique combination. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And it, at one time, there were Harris. It was Harris tweed was sold. It was it was imported from weavers in Harris. And also socks and things, so uh, right, okay. So, way back, I've, we've got the, all the cash books back to nineteen thirty-five, I think, <laughs> and you can see the suppliers. There was more drink and tweeds and stuff, yeah. And the hardware was not so significant. That's remarkable. I think it's an interesting shop because it sells things that people need. Yes. However much you know. 
we've got internet shopping and things. If you've got a leak in the roof, you need yeah. a bucket. Yeah. And you need it now. Yes. You don't need it when Amazon deliver it in two days' time. Exactly. And we'll always need shops that have what you need, the things you need now. And uh, In many ways, it's a reflection of the, the society that it's grown out of as well, because if something's not needed, you won't stock it. Yes. What were, when you were running, what were the, the biggest selling items, would you say? Oh, it's always things like batteries, and then we got into watch batteries, yeah. which, you know, it's... Vital. It's vital. If you've got a watch and it battery, you want an, another battery now. So we all got very skilled at flipping the back off a battery, finding the right one, popping it in, putting the back on, and uh, just a small thing. But a lifesaver. Yes, and then we got into things like phone chargers and things as well. You know, I often think, I mean, Anster's been gone 25 years. If he came back, he wouldn't recognise half the things that we'd moved into selling. Yeah. But he would still recognise the bottles of, of whiskey and the, oh, yes. the plastic buckets and the screws. And well, this, this device that you know, I've got in my hand, this small uh, microphone cover, mm-hmm. microphone sock, that was bought in Browns. Was it now? Yes. Well, that must have been something they've moved into. <laughs> well, it was, it was Gus that bought it, and I, um, I got it with him. Right. I got it bought from him a number of years ago. But, yeah, it's like you get a microphone socked. Yes. Socked there and, uh, mm-hmm. and more recently, there was Tropical Fish as well. <laughs> yes, that was never in my time. <laughs> no, I no. think that's gone there. But I think any local shop is really... The important thing is the people behind the counter. The customer's important, but it's the people behind the counter. And we've been really lucky over the years, as far back as I can remember and beyond, is really good staff, staff that interact with the customer. And you've got to remember it's the local person or complete stranger, the person that you know really well, you practically know what they're going to ask for when they come in, or this foreigner and you're struggling to understand what they want. You has one of these? Huh? Yes. Oh, sorry, what? Yes. Um, so you have to be ready for anything and engage with people. And like any any shop or office, it's the fun you have with the staff. Yeah, totally. And that is what people miss. Lots of people miss that when they retire. Yeah, totally. Um, Your community, essentially. It's the community. It's doing things. It's doing Christmassy things. It's doing summer things. It's being a team, working together, and... In terms of the staff that you had now, who were the long-term members of staff that you had working with you? Oh, well, going away back was Willie Harley. People will mention him. Neely McKinnon, Jean Campbell. They were all... They were all Miss Jean Campbell? Miss Jean Campbell. Oh, she was lovely. I, um, My great-uncle lived in Haywards Heath in, uh, in Sussex, mm-hmm. and her auntie lived in Hayward Season Sussex in uh, the same building as my great uncle and so tales would be told from uh, right. from, from Mull to Hayward's Heath and back. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so she would sort of check in on me, oh, you know, how are you getting on? You're doing well. <laughs> so it was, it was lovely. I, I was very fond of well, her. Well, Jean worked in the, in the office right. uh, for a long, long time. And, uh, Actually a very special lady. Yes. Yeah. So really sad when she died because I felt she hadn't had much time to enjoy being retired. Yeah. Um, so, um, Brown Shop just sort of pops up in, you know, travel blogs and blogs and, you know, it's mentioned as being a bit quaint. Yes, totally, yeah. Yes. What, um, what uh, is the weirdest thing you can remember <laughs> stocking or selling? 
without making someone embarrassed? <laughs> I, can't re- I don't think I, I've got an answer to that right. because I really don't know. Um, yeah. Because you just... Stalked everything. Stalk everything. <laughs> That's fantastic. And yeah. things that are no longer legal, like rabbit snares. Oh, yeah. Yes, that, you know, you can't sell. And then we used to sell... Um, Ammunition and stuff. Really? And that, oh, I stopped that because I, it got more and more complicated. The license got more and more expensive. Yeah. The regulation. And then it just, I thought, this is not worth it. The profit from this is is not equal to the stress and the hassle and the paperwork. So. Parallel to Brown's, you also started to publish. Yes, the publishing started when Jean Whitaker was work, working in Tackling Books. Yes. And it started with people picking up a map, buying it, and then they would open it. Before they left the shop, they would open the map and look at Jean and say, where can I go for a walk? <laughs> so that is the first line in the first book we ever did which was walking in North Mull yep. and the first walk was to the lighthouse back nice. so we just one August afternoon we walked to the lighthouse and back and wrote some notes yeah. and then we did some other walks like up Sarchburn and up Spinia um, the one that went from nothing to everybody does it is round Treshnish really? yes Wow, the first time we wrote about going to Treshnish, um, we started at what is now um, Charlotte's House, Charlotte's house yeah. which was then the a school, ruin. No, the old house. And we walked down to that Googery and Cracking and down to the Whiskey Cave and along. and around. Well, we described it in that first description as if nobody had ever been there. There's no track, there's no path. We're saying things... Don't walk in the valley floor because it's quite muddy. Keep up the hill yeah. a bit to the left. Yeah. And then we describe Black Googery and Crackig and a bit of the history. We always put in a wee history bit. Yeah. And a wee something to, to the, every point in the walk, there was a wee something mm-hmm. to look at or history or facts. And then about going down the, the steep track. Yes. And then how to be sure you're going down the right valley to get to the whiskey cave. Yeah, because there's two caves, yeah. Yes, but to make sure that you go down the right one yeah. to find the whiskey cave and so on. Well, by the, within two years, this walk, because we did right round Treshnish mm-hmm. um, and came out back at the farm and we also did the other way um, along, out at Berg, you uh-huh. know, at, yeah. at Dineshkin. Yeah, yeah. So we went that way and there's a tidal bit and making sure that, you know, telling people what type that there are tide tables that tell you when the tide's coming in and going out because yeah. if you're from Birmingham or mm, a city you, maybe not realize. you don't realise the tide is predictable uh-huh. so remember to check the tide yeah. before you do this bit yeah. otherwise you can't get round the corner so that's it but within a couple of years this had become a well trodden track <laughs> we had to keep revising because it was a bit ridiculous yeah. to be right ra- reading it as if it was unknown territory, <laughs> when it was obviously very well trodden. Yeah. 
Yeah, follow the crisp packet on the and then <laughs> and then we did lots of other books but um, we found that some of the walking books were being used by other walking guides if you go in we were all alone on the shelf as yeah. the guide to walks on mal yeah. and now there's dozens of them and there's quite a lot of our work there whole sentences very flattering very annoying. Very, very annoying. That's yeah, yeah. Yes. intellectual property is a, yes. a massive thing. It's so, so we did North Mall, including Ben Moore, mm-hmm. and Ben Moore has never changed. We've never had to rewrite a word. <laughs> Whereas anything through a forest like Ardmore, oh, they yeah. cut it down, they yeah. plant it. Yeah. They say they're going to cut it down, mm-hmm. so you preempt it by describing it as if it wasn't there, mm-hmm. and then they change their mind and they don't cut it down. Yeah. We've had some fun with forestry. Tracks. Ardmore was when I lived in Tobermory. Ardmore was my regular walk for a mm-hmm. decent walk. I'd go and yes. do the loop down the shore and back up, or even you know walk out to Glengorm or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was just I loved it. It was yeah. And that has changed over the last oh yeah thirty well, years. It's yeah. it's been planted and cut down and replanted and cut down. Yeah. So it's no, it's remarkable. Quite interesting. I yeah, uh, very fond memories of it. it's one of the few places in the north where you can see the Scoot of Egg. Mm-hmm. As well, you can yeah. you can see bits of it, but yes. from there you can see the whole thing. It's uh, I love it. And then we moved on and did South Mull, and we stayed down in the Argyll Arms for about several days, so so we could do Iona and the Carsig Arches, oh gosh, yeah. and um, the Fossil Tree, yeah. Ardtun, mm-hmm. uh, Scour, Sheaba, yeah. all that lot. So we did all these walks. While staying in the Argyll Arms, <laughs> and, uh, of all the walks on the island, which would you say is the one that you kind of love the most? I think the Carsig Arches because it's it's not actually very far, mm, but it's a scramble and a half. It it's not a difficult walk. It's not very far, but there's so much of interest. There's fossils on the shore, and there's yeah. wildlife, and there's goats and. Yes. All sorts of things, stinky, deer, eagles. We sat down once to have a picnic and this otter just popped up, right? You know, no camera at that point. Yeah. Um, just looking for a comfy place out of the wind to eat the picnic and this otter shot up, so it's everything. And then when you get to Carsig Arches, there's a adrenaline rush of the scary bit over yeah. the top. Yeah, that's a bit scary. <laughs> it's scary, and we say to people, it's scary. Yeah. Um, but we do warn them, yeah. and it, and then it's up to them yeah. whether they do it or not. So I would say the Carsig Arches is probably one to do. Yes, yeah. because you get so much, so much of interest. As well as the publishing, you also um, were part of and are part of the Mall Museum. The Mall Museum, yes, is a place a place you could visit. Uh, we have objects, artifacts. Um, archives yeah. and we Fantastic don't library, yes and a library we don't do outings and we only do one talk every two years because it's a place to come to yeah and we have well last year was a bit down we only had 26,000 visitors <laughs> that's quite something <laughs> that's, that's between Easter and the end of October that's so, <laughs> so the museum has been going a long time. It was originally just a group of people right. with a collection of stuff. 
um, and they had and a temp- Polly Bags wandering around mo- town. <laughs> well, not quite. It was a temporary exhibition right. in the summer in the Mason's Hall. Ah, well, where you can now buy Himalayan crafts during the summer. Yes. <laughs> well, there was this temporary exhibition um, just laid out on the on tables. It was wow. not very ambitious. And then come the end of the summer, the Masons wanted the hall back for their meetings mm-hmm. and all the collection had to be taken home by the members of the committee. So things went in people's lofts, people's cupboards, people's <laughs> garages. Not good. And, Archived correctly. <laughs> and, yes. Not catalogued. Well, sort of listed, but... And then in about 1986... Um, the museum was left the building that it's now in Phenomenal. by the Craig family. Daisy Craig, who had the treasure shop, mm-hmm. her sister Jessie, mm-hmm. who was the town cl- last town clerk of Tobermory, and the other sister, Ina, Mrs Sutherland, who she, they live, she and her husband lived up north, but they, between them, the three sisters, had no offspring, so they decided they would leave the building the that the museum's in, and we are so lucky prime site in the middle of the town yeah and it's not maybe ideal because it's on three stories but the ground floor is the exhibition the first floor is the archives and the library and the top floor of the attic is where all the artifacts that are not on display are kept that's remarkable um so my wife Georgia is the uh, archivist there and uh, I'd never experienced uh, the reading room or anything like that at all and as someone who's you know reads a lot about mm-hmm. Scotland and Mull and, and looks at it I walked into this wonderful room and it's just oh the feeling there is perfect and you've got all of the um, the, the Japanese texts about Isabella Bird as yes. well can you maybe say a little bit about that if that's possible well Isabella Bird um, her connection with Tobimori is she rented a cottage, the cottage just across the road here behind the Western Isles Hotel. Mm-hmm. She and her sister Henrietta rented that cottage mm-hmm. and used to come on holidays. Mm-hmm. And then Isabella Bird went off travelling. Yes. She went to America, she went to Hawaii, yep. uh, she went, she was in Colorado and, and um, had an exciting time there. She went to Japan, she went all sorts of places. And while she was away, she wrote back to her sister Henrietta. Lots of letters to Dear Henny, she called her. Dear Henny. Pages and pages of very closely written letters, sometimes 18 pages of very closely written on both sides. Quite hard to read. Yeah. But from these letters, and presumably diaries, she published books about her travels. And... um, a Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains was, yes. and then Unbeaten Tracks in Japan mm. and then once about various other eastern places but the Japan one um, caught the interest of a Japanese professor called Kiyonori Kanasaka mm-hmm. from Kyoto mm-hmm. and he has followed Isabella but he's, I would say he's obsessed yes <laughs> Yes. He's followed Isabella Bird's tracks from the day she was born to everywhere she has visited all over the world and done lots of photos. Yeah. Um, Isabella Bird took photos and he took photos and he's had exhibitions. One's been here called um, Twin Time Travel and it's his pictures of 
now mm-hmm. and when it was Isabella Bird's time. When she was in Japan, it was just when it was being opened up to yeah. the West. Yeah. She was really lucky that they... Pioneering. Well, she was pioneering, but she got the support of the British um, ambassador there. The British consulate in Japan supported her. Wow. And I don't think she could have done what she did there without that support. Without that, um, support and sort of an official letter to say she could come and she explored sort of quite remote bits of Japan like Hokkaido mm. which is away in the north mm. and it and she met sort of the native tribes and things mm. she was so brave yeah. and she went on traveling right till the last and her last visit was to Morocco oh wow now there's a mul- sort of mal connection there that the Sultan of Morocco... Was from Karsig? No. <laughs> his um, secretary uh-huh. was um, Maclean. No. He was a Maclean from Drimnan, known as the Kaid. And we have his sword and things in the museum. That's mad. Yes. And apparently he... Um, <laughs> spoke Arabic with a bit of a Highland accent. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, although the Sultan was not really into receiving foreigners and certainly not foreign women, yeah. because of this connection, she was able to meet him. Unfortunately, she never wrote up really her... She never wrote up her um, visit to Morocco, so there isn't really a book about it. God, yeah, so by then she was over 70... And uh, and when she died, um, she left £200 in her will to build a clock, which is the clock we now have. It was a yeah. clock in Tobermory in memory and of her sister Henrietta, yeah. who died in Tobermory of typhoid. So Poor thing. it was quite sad, but that's why we've got this, this clock. Yeah. And here we are, you know, 100 odd years later, still talking about them. Yes. And... Well, in 2005, we had a, a little sort of remembrance thing because it was 100 years since the clock had been built. Yeah. So we had a little remembrance thing of Henrietta and Isabella and we mm-hmm. laid a wreath at the clock. We had specially composed music. Lovely. We had an artist in residence who did all sorts of things around the town. Mm-hmm. It was quite a big event and we got greetings from the Japanese ambassador. He didn't come in person, but he sent he sent a letter. That's lovely. So that's Isabella's connection yeah. with Tobomori and why why it's still quite live because of this Professor Kanasaka's interest, and he's been here yeah. umpteen times. Yeah, he's published loads. That shelf yes. is full of his work. It's yes, I know that. Uh, I'm pretty certain in saying that. Uh, Nick, Nick Holmes. Nick Holmes has also stepped in her footsteps as well and documented. Yes, he got a residency in Colorado mm-hmm. to go and study and photograph yeah. where she travelled there. Nick Holmes' photography yes. is fantastic. He's and he has also a connection from where where Isabella Bird grew up down in... Cambridge, maybe? Yes, in Witton, I think it's right. called, right. or Whiton. Gosh. So he has a connection, yeah. which is a yeah. bit of a coincidence that he's here yeah. and he has all this connection. 
There's something else. Maybe just briefly talk about uh, the the role of the Women's Institute in your life yeah. as well, if that's yes. okay. What is the role of the Women's Institute in in rural life now in modern in the modern world? Just the same as it always was, because it's it's um, it's to keep alive skills yep. and also fellowship and friendship. Yes, it's basically it's just a club for women of like minds. Yeah. But one of the things that we try to do is keep alive skills that might be lost. Cooking skills, craft skills, sewing, knitting. Um, because younger ones are growing up and saying, oh, they wish they knew how to do that. So, But a lot of it is, is fun and it's it's... It's a national organisation that started in 1917, so yeah. we've, we've been around for over 100 years. Well, this is us the, on the 100th anniversary of the vote for women today. I think yes, it's when they could yes. actually finally vote, it was today. That, yes, yeah. so, but it came out of giving up, the whole thing was to give opportunities to rural women. If you think in the old days, in 1917, mm-hmm. on a farm, there'll be lots of farm there'll be the farmer and his wife and family yes. and but there'll be the labourers yes and their wives yes. and families yes. now the labourers would go off and work to work yes. they would have companionship because they'd be working yeah, together they'd yeah. go to the mart they would do this yeah. wives are left at home with squad bairns just being at home and yeah. being a bit lonely yeah. so that was one of the founding principles was for these rural women to have once a month Fellowship. could get together and do things and learn things. Fellowship, which is really important yeah, if you live in a remote place. Yes, very, very much. And there was always instruction and there's always been an international thing, um, learning learning about other countries, raising money for foreign projects. Every year, each group's supposed to have one foreign Element one one meeting once a month all year one month is something where there's something about it could just be somebody's holiday snaps but it's to to turn your eyes out yeah. as well as in and uh, there was uh, Jane Russell shared a fantastic photo the other day of oh that well can you see can you see what that photo was and ask Jane was, if you can share it in part of the blog it, it was just um, a meeting. Mm-hmm. It must have been in the summer because we were all getting our summer things. It's in the dinner room in the high school because that's where we used to meet. Right. We met there from... Ni- Tomori Institute started in 1929. It wasn't the first on Mull. There was one at Grulin and one at Chiroran really? before that. Gosh. But the Tomori one started in October 1929. So we've been going a long time <laughs> meeting in the school until very recently... And then all the rules and regulations about the use of school premises got too much for us. Yeah. So we've now met in Glenishall in the common room, oh, that's good which is a really nice, yeah, comfortable, warm, nice. warm and yeah. very well lit if you're doing craft work. And also nice if there are any of the older members. Are well, they're around. welcome to come at any time. Yeah. So, so, so we're just we must we were just having a meeting, mm. and somebody said, "Let's have a photo." I mean, we were always taking photos. 
but Jane must have come across that it's one. because you're in is it Salmi Garb or something like that? Oh, that photo! Yeah. Not the oh. Somebody shared one of us just sitting in the dinner room. Oh, oh no, this right. no, no, this oh the one Jane shared. Oh, we went on a weekend to Amsterdam. Oh, it's Dutch. Ah, it's Dutch. Right. No, no, sorry, just scrub all that bit because oh, there was this picture of us all sitting in the dinner room, and that's right. looking now. No, we organised a trip uh, to the basically to the bulb fields so we mm. went stayed in Amsterdam and we had a day at the Kuchenhof Gardens and the bulb fields just fantastic yeah. because it's different every year yeah. you could go every year That's and it's totally all totally different. replanted yeah. we did a river cruise we did all the things you do in Amsterdam and then we went to this village not everything, you, not, not everything. <laughs> no no come on calm yourself um, the rural <laughs> oh god <laughs> no no um, we did the you know visiting the museums and things like that yeah. and go to the diamond place where they, yeah. they show you the diamonds and uh, and then we went to a village called Volendam it's just a little touristy village and there's a, lots of places there where they give you the opportunity to dress in traditional costume <laughs> and that is what we're doing in that photo oh, it's fantastic. we're all dressed up in these out Outfits and the clogs and the hats, and we had to hold things that looked like big cheeses and things. It was very well practiced. Oh, they must have been. They must do this all yeah, day, every day. day yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's why we're all sitting there. Yeah, because it's really it's an it's a really odd photo. It's just like that's Jane dressed as a Dutch well, lady. <laughs> well, yes, well we're in in this village Volendam, right? Which specialises in photo studios <laughs> that's brilliant oh, so that that was that was a fun day out I must ask Jane if I can get that photo because that's fantastic yes um, so well that, that I mean we've covered so much and is there anything that you want to say anything that was running through you, the back of your mind knowing that was coming and that you thought something about the character of the island something about the character of Tobermory because you're so closely although you understand and know the island you're so closely related to Tobermory itself I don't think so because where you live is where you live, yeah. and you know, it's like it's this is how your thing started. Is what do we do in the winter? It's yeah. that question that visitors ask you. What do you do in the winter? Do you live here all the year round? And lots of silly questions. Yeah. And what do you go do back to open at the end of the day? Yes, and what do you do all day? Well, just exactly the same. Yeah. I always I always reply by saying, well, what do you do in the winter? Yeah. Exactly. Which is, um. Yeah. The answer is, what does anybody do in the winter? Exactly. You don't go out as much when it's pouring rain and miserable. No. no. Um, so, yes, it's just a good place to live. It's a happy place to live. There's lots going on. And how does it feel to have at least part of your family back here now? Well, that is really good. Yeah. Yes. How does that feel knowing that there's there's another two generations below yourself who are here now? It's It's very exciting because... I didn't know they were going to do it. They must have been thinking about it. And then suddenly there was, let's do it. <laughs> Brilliant. And it's it's really nice because it means the, the grandchildren who are here, yeah. I know really well. I don't know them as well as, as the other grandchildren because two are grown up and yeah. I don't see them very much. I've just become a great granny. 
which is, That's which is very exciting. Oh, lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's next generation down. Gosh. And then I've got grandchildren in London, and yeah. Alan lives in Toronto, so yeah. I don't see his little boy very, very yeah. much. So it's nice to have the next generation committed to being on Mal, yeah. which shows it's a good place to live. I think so. I think it definitely does. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Olive. If you're interested in any of the topics covered in this episode, you can find all sorts of links on the website on whatwedointhewinter.com. It's been a week of storms here on Mull. The wind through Monday night and into Tuesday morning was really something. Today seems to have calmed down quite a lot, though, and we were able to get across to Oban for a big shop, which was great. I love this time of year because when you get on the ferries, it's just filled with your pals. <laughs> it's a very good thing. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations, so if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a packet of Tunnet's Caramel Wafers, wherever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished, but don't worry if you can't or you don't want to, I'd much rather you listen than not. And if you want to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast, please feel free. And on that note, thank you to Kirsty. Pam and the anonymous donors for your donations. Your support is very much appreciated. Thank you. And thank you to those of you who reach out and say hello both online and in person. It's great to hear from you. Thank you so much. As ever, the webpage, whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode, and we can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Morantang, Shenu.